Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. But it's not always. Christmas isn't always merry and the holidays aren't always happy. You know, this Sunday, as we heard during the lighting of the Advent candles, this is the Sunday of joy. But for many people during the holidays and the Christmas season, joy is actually one of the last emotions that might be at the forefront of your heart and your life. You know, a friend shared with me an article about loss titled Holidays and Empty Chairs. And the article says, though you may indeed have many reasons to feel fortunate and to give thanks, what this season is now marked by more than anything is absence. Surrounded by noise and activity in life, your eyes and your heart can't help but drift to that quiet space that now remains unoccupied. The cruel vacancy of the empty chair. You know, around the holidays, that empty chair seems to become more noticeable, doesn't it? It becomes more prominent. That empty place at the holiday dinner table, the empty chair by the Christmas tree, the empty pew in the church building. There are places where a loved one should be, but he won't be there. Words that he, she would have spoken, but instead there's silence. There are pictures, events, and memories from this year's celebration that that loved one will not be a part of. An empty chair could be because of death. It could be because of estrangement, unresolved conflicts, or unforgiven offenses. Maybe there's a prodigal who just won't come home. Or maybe a pariah, unwelcome to come home. Maybe there's an empty chair because of a divorce or the ending of a relationship. Hearts and lives ripped apart by that which society assures us is no fault in natural. Elvis Presley sang, along with many others, of a blue Christmas. I'll have a blue Christmas without you, and I'll be so blue thinking about you. And that's how many people feel during the holiday season. Empty chairs, empty hearts, empty lives. You know, sometimes the empty chair is because or further reminder of some kind of a personal tragedy. You know, a financial situation which means he couldn't afford to come home for Christmas, or maybe he was just ashamed to show up empty-handed again. The empty chair could be because of cancer or a sickness and the loved one can't leave the hospital. Maybe the empty chair is a baby's high chair that you hoped would be occupied, but is not. Maybe the chair is not empty, but it's unfamiliar. You sit as a refugee in an unfamiliar house, maybe even an unfamiliar land. A victim fleeing the injustice and violence of nations. A victim escaping abuse and manipulation of a relationship. A victim of greed or deception left now without a home or savings or hope. Maybe the chair is not empty, but the occupant of the chair is empty. Distracted digitally or absent emotionally. Depressed and overwhelmed. Withdrawn from those who are around the tree as she rehearses previous offenses and nurses old wounds. Or maybe drunk or high and everybody's trying to ignore or just excuse his behavior as they do each and every year. Joy is not always the first emotion when it comes to the holiday celebrations. And in fact, sometimes it's the very celebration that brings to the forefront and kind of throws a spotlight on the brokenness in our lives and in our world. So while we might feel the pressure at this season to appear joyful and happy and merry, and we might give our best efforts to do so, Christmas is not always merry and the holidays are not always happy. But friends, the good news the good news is that this has been true from the very beginning. And there's hope. 
We discover in the very first Christmas account, tragedy, loss, emptiness, and lament. And so today, surrounded by celebrative, celebrative, celebrative? Why did I write that word if I couldn't pronounce it? Songs of celebration. While we're surrounded today by songs of celebration and joy, joy has come. We also recognize that many are weeping quiet songs of lament. The joy of Christmas exposes that this world and our lives are just not as they should be. And so we lament. And what do we what do we learn from the sorrow that's part of the Christmas story that we hear today? And what hope do we find for ourselves in our own sorrow this Christmas? As we ask that, let's pray together. Lord, as we open your word now, speak to us. Speak to those that are lamenting. To those who are not anticipating a Merry Christmas or a Happy Holiday. Speak to all of us, Lord, in the brokenness of our lives in this world. Speak, because we desperately need some hope. And we believe there is hope. We believe there is hope in the baby that was born that first Christmas. We believe there is hope. And Lord, we need it. So reveal yourself to us as we open your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, that's page 757. Page 757. Matthew chapter 2. Oh, also, if you have a large print pew Bible, that's 960. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to look at a story. We actually read this text last week, and we're going to read it again this week. But look at the second half of it. It starts in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, saying, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where? Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so, it, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of, Judea, of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod's about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. As we've already seen, as we've started to study Matthew 2, Matthew 2 contains three fulfilled prophecies. And last week we talked about the fulfillment of the first prophecy. The coming of the Magi, the wise men from the east following a star searching for a newborn king. That king was not born in the city of Jerusalem where they first sought after him. Rather, as foretold by Micah the prophet, the Messiah, God's anointed, was born in a small town, in the little town of Bethlehem. But we find two further prophecies that Matthew writes in this chapter were fulfilled by the birth of Jesus, and neither one of these is particularly good news. Understand that at the time of Jesus' birth, Rome, Rome was the dominant power in the whole earth. Palestine was only a puppet state, and the Jewish people, they were not sovereign. The king that Rome had appointed to sit on the throne was not a king from the anointed royal line of David. The king who currently sat on the throne was not a descendant even of Jacob. He was a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. And his name, as the text notes, was Herod the Great. And history records Herod was brutal. He was a paranoid and an insecure king. He was a king who did not fear God. And he thought nothing of having his own wife and children murdered. This is the Herod who came to the, who the Magi came to and who the Magi alerted to the birth of a rival king. And as you can imagine, Herod, as paranoid and insecure as he was, did not take it well. And because of his insecurity and paranoia, Herod was not going to suffer any kind of potential rival rising to the throne. And once he realized he'd been deceived by the Magi who went home by another way, they didn't come and report the whereabouts of the newborn king. What did he do? He ordered the slaughter of all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who were two years old and under. Now, as we discussed last week, Bethlehem was a small town and the surrounding area was sparsely populated. So scholars estimate the number of male children slaughtered were probably between 12 and 20. But that means a significant number of families in that small community fell victim to the unjust wrath of a paranoid and insecure king. Children ripped from their families, empty chairs, empty beds, empty homes. Merry Christmas. This is not the part of the Christmas story that we like to discuss. I have yet to see a Christmas card featuring Giotto's Massacre of the Innocents. We don't like this part of the story because isn't Christmas about being merry, about celebration, about happiness? Isn't this the Sunday of joy? And if so, why do we find this account as part of the Christmas narrative? You know, it's not like this happening surprised God somehow. In fact, Matthew says this was the fulfillment of prophecy. And he quotes the prophet Jeremiah, who said, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, you might remember Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So Rachel was one of the matriarchs of the Jewish people. 
And Genesis 35 tells us that Rachel died in childbirth as she was actually on the road traveling to Bethlehem. And she was buried alongside the road outside of Bethlehem. And even today, many Jewish people go to visit Rachel's tomb and to pour out their sorrows to Mother Rachel. Because Rachel herself died in childbirth. She died in sorrow and lament. And as she died giving birth, she named her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Well, Jacob changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. And so we know him as Benjamin today. But Rachel died in sorrow and lamentation. And a thousand years after Rachel died outside of Bethlehem in sorrow and lamentation, the prophet Jeremiah came along and he watched Rachel's offspring, the Jewish people, trudging down to exile along that same road where Rachel was buried. After a siege in which many were starved, an assault in which many more had fallen to the sword, the Babylonian army now dragged the Jewish people to Ramah which was a holding camp where they were chained for the long march to their exile in Babylon. And seeing this, the prophet Jeremiah lamented, the children of Rachel are now lost. They've been starved, they've been slaughtered, and now they're dragged into exile. Rachel weeps and she refuses to be comforted because, look, her children are no more. But now, 600 years later, after Jeremiah's prophecy... Matthew sees in the slaughter of more innocent Jewish children a further fulfillment of these words. Weeping and loud lamentation. These Jewish mothers in Bethlehem refusing to be comforted because their innocent children are no more. What a horrible history. What a horrible story. Why is this here? In the midst of the most incredible story, about the most incredible event that has ever happened in history, the Creator God taking on flesh, coming that He might make a way that we can be reconciled to Him. Right in the midst of the greatest news comes this report, innocent, slaughtered, injustice, emptiness, and lament. What do we do with this? Well, friends, in it we find good news. Because for those who don't find Christmas so merry and the holidays so happy, to those for whom the holidays only put a spotlight on their pain and the brokenness of this world and themselves, to those for whom songs of lament come much easier in this season than songs of joy, there's good news. We find that lament, sadness, and loss are part of the Christmas story. This account highlights the absolute brokenness and injustice of the world into which Jesus was born. And today, we still live in that same broken world and we still experience that same brokenness today. You know, yesterday, December 14th, marked seven years. Friday, December 14th of 2012, a man killed his mother in their home, took her car, forced his way into Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, opened fire and massacred 26 people, including 20 children. Our country's second deadliest school shooting exceeded only by Virginia Tech. The shooting eliciting memories of what happened in Columbine, the high school in Colorado. But friends, Virginia Tech was a college. Columbine was a high school. This was an elementary school. 
the victim, six to seven years old, children whose parents had kissed them before they dropped them off at school that morning. The slaughter of innocence. And friends, the horrible account we read in Matthew is part of the Christmas story because this horror is still part of our world today. We live in a world that is horribly broken by sin. We lament loudly and we weep inconsolably because our children are slaughtered and are no more. Our families are broken and they are no more. Our relationships go unhealed and they are no more. Forgiveness never comes. Women are abused. Addiction binds. Injustice robs. Dishonesty robs. Sickness weakens, the grave consumes, and darkness seems to win the day. Things in this world are just not as they should be. And so we lament with those mothers in Bethlehem. We lament with the mothers in Newtown, Connecticut. And we raise our own voices in weeping and loud lamentation, refusing to be comforted because this world is not the way it should be. Our relationships are not the way they should be. Our families are not the way they should be. We are not the way we should be. And what can be done about it? What can be done? Well, that brings us to the final prophecy Matthew says was fulfilled by these events. We read that before it happened, an angel came and warned Jesus' family to flee Herod's coming wrath. So Joseph took Mary and Jesus and fled the 90 miles to the Egyptian border so that they were outside of Herod's jurisdiction. And after Herod died in 4 BC, they returned. And Matthew says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. These words were originally spoken by the prophet Hosea. And originally, the Lord was speaking about delivering his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt to safety. But now, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew says, the Lord has again fulfilled this prophecy. He has again safely delivered his son, his son, Jesus, from the danger of Herod and has returned him from his exile in Egypt. That's great. But it causes us to ask a hard question. If God could send an angel to warn Mary and Joseph to flee, why didn't he send angels to any of the other mothers in Bethlehem that day? If God intervenes to deliver Jesus, why did he allow all the other innocents to be slaughtered? Why would God deliver his own son, calling his son out of Egypt, while leaving Rachel to loudly lament and inconsolably weep over her children, which are no more? You've asked that question, haven't you? Where are the angels warning us to flee? Where are the angels delivering us? Where is God delivering us from danger, calling me out of danger, my loved one out of danger? Why are we left inconsolably weeping and loudly lamenting that our children are no more? My wife is no more. My husband's no more. My baby's no more. My health is no more. My prodigal is no more. My home is no more. My marriage, my family, my freedom, my savings, my sanity, my innocence, my peace. They're no more. Why are we left in this world with Rachel inconsolably weeping and loudly lamenting its brokenness and our own brokenness while we see God calling his son out of Egypt, delivering him from Herod and from danger and from the pain the rest of Bethlehem is left to experience? It doesn't seem fair that God would exempt his son from our suffering. Now, you and I can wonder. We can wonder why God does what he does and doesn't do what he doesn't do. 
We can wonder why he would allow sicknesses or accidents, why he allows dysfunction to continue or addictions to go unbroken. We can wonder why evil often seems unrestrained or relationships go unreconciled. We do, we do not and we may never understand the why behind a particular event that you or a loved one experiences. And this passage doesn't give us illumination on why God allowed that specific evil that befell you or your loved one or your family that left you lamenting and weeping like Rachel. But what this passage does is point us to the gospel, to the good news. Because, you know, it doesn't seem fair that God would exempt his son from our suffering. But, friends, the gospel is that he didn't. Jesus was not exempted from our suffering. God did call his son out of Egypt that day, saving him from danger in Herod. He was rescued from Herod so that he could die under Pontius Pilate. Jesus escaped out of Bethlehem so that he could die on a cross outside of Jerusalem. An angel came to deliver the baby Jesus, but no angel showed up as he hung in agony upon the cross, bearing the sin of the world upon himself. God delivered his son in the cradle so that one day he might turn away from his son as he hung upon the cross. In Bethlehem, Jesus was delivered from evil so that on Calvary he could be delivered to evil. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Church, Jesus was delivered from evil in Bethlehem that one day outside of Jerusalem, all of our evil might be delivered to him. That he might bear upon himself all of our sin, all of our abuse, all of our grief, all of our sorrow, all of our shame, born upon himself. Why? So that it might ultimately be healed. And now, Rachel might finally be comforted. As one pastor observed from this passage, the only boy to escape Herod is the only one who can comfort Rachel. Do you hear that? The only boy to escape Herod in Bethlehem is the only one who can comfort Rachel in her weeping and lamentation. Jesus lived through that brutal night in Bethlehem, which left Rachel inconsolably weeping so that one day Jesus could be brutalized upon the cross so that Rachel might finally and eternally find consolation. Dying on the cross, bearing our evil, Jesus paid for and buried it all. And rising from death on the third day, healing has begun. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Rachel can be comforted. We might be healed, and the healing of the world has begun. Jesus has begun an age-long reversal of the curse, undoing sin and death and weeping. Everything sad is coming untrue. Until one day. One day Jesus will return. He'll make all things completely and perfectly new. Sin and death and sorrow will be no more. This is comfort for Rachel and comfort for us. Friends, grief is real. When we lose, the grief you feel is real. But the good news is it's not ultimate. Death is the final enemy. But the good news is death will not have the final word. 
with Rachel in this life, we weep and we lament. But because of what Jesus has done, our weeping is not inconsolable, but can turn to joy. It will not always be this way. One day, everything sad will come untrue and Rachel will be eternally comforted. Christmas and holiday celebrations bring to the forefront the brokenness of ourselves, of our lives, and of this world. Our loss, our pain, our loneliness, our emptiness, our regret. But there is comfort. There's comfort as we suffer the consequences of our own evil and as we suffer the consequences of a broken world. Matthew's gospel is honest. It's honest about the dark side of Christmas. But it also makes clear, friends, that the darkness is neither the whole story, nor is it the important part of the story. The darkness is neither the whole story, nor is it the important part of the story. Because of what Christ has done, Rachel will be comforted. And so might you and me. When we close our service in a while, we will sing a song that's known as the Carol for the Despairing. The words for the carol, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, are actually a poem. A poem written by American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow over the Christmas of either 1863 or 1864. Now, in 1861, Longfellow tragically lost his wife when her dress caught on fire in their home. And Longfellow burned himself so severely trying to put out the fire and to save her that his injuries prevented him from even going to her funeral. Then in 1863, although he was forbidden, Longfellow's son Charles ran away to join the Union Army, only to be severely wounded and returned home injured. So here's Longfellow in the middle of the Civil War, the bloodiest war in American history. And from a place of weeping over his wife and his son, Longfellow's lament became the poem Christmas Bells. And the poem says the ringing of the bells on Christmases on the ringing of the bells on Christmas Day promises us joy, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And yet, doesn't that often seem like an empty promise in the middle of pain and loss, which is so often brought to the forefront during our holiday celebrations? And yet, because of what Christ has done, Rachel can find comfort, and so can you. As Longfellow writes, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And friends, if you've come here today and you feel like the Christmas bells are liars and their promise of peace and goodwill rings hollow, if you feel your Christmas is not promising to be merry and your holidays not happy, if you feel the world is broken and you feel the shadows deepen, That no, all the dark won't stop the light from getting through. Hear the good news. Longfellow discovered and that the gospel proclaims. Darkness is neither the whole story, nor is it the most important part of the story. Because Jesus entered into the darkness of our sin, our suffering, and our death to bring us light and life. God is not dead. God has won. Christ prevailed. And therefore, there's a promise of healing and comfort for Rachel, a promise of healing and comfort for this world, a promise that even as we lament here today in the present darkness, we can still sing, it is well, it is well with my soul. And friends, can you sing that today? Do not leave here today without the one who has come to comfort Rachel. And to bring you comfort in the midst of your weeping 
and lamentation in the midst of the darkness and the brokenness of this world, of our families, of our relationships, and of ourselves. Do not leave here today without knowing Jesus, who has come to bring us the healing that we so desperately need. At the end of the service, our prayer team will be up front here as they always are. And if you need prayer, they would love to pray with you. If you need to know Jesus, the comforter and healer, then come up that they might introduce you and pray with you. If you need assurance that sin and sorrow and brokenness and death don't have the final word, but Jesus does, then remember. So that even now in the midst of your lamentation, this not so merry Christmas, you can know him, him who is our comfort and joy, both now and forevermore. Let's pray to him now. God, we come to you confessing that the world is broken, confessing that we are broken. And we thank you. We thank you that you have not made a temporary fix, but that you have come sending us Jesus, that all might be made new, that we might be perfectly healed, and that we might know everlasting joy. So God, be with those who mourn now. Bring them comfort and peace. Bring them yourself. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing together number 152 in your hymnals. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Gathering ends, and God now sends you 
Go into the world filled with loud lamentation and inconsolable weeping. And may you declare the good news of peace on earth and goodwill to all. Amen.